Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of a three-part series on the life, crimes, and death of Ted Bundy. If you haven't already, please listen to part one of this series, which is episode 102 of True Blue Crime, where we cover Ted's childhood and the years that led up to his horrendous crime spree. And before we dive into today's episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In part one of the series, we talked about the childhood of Ted Bundy. He was born to a single mother, and the family pretended his grandparents were his parents for the first three years of his life until his mother moved him out to Washington State. After his mother married a man who adopted him as a son, Ted lived a life of anger, violence, and crime, but managed to stay under the radar of law enforcement for the most part. After getting his heart broken by his college sweetheart, Ted got serious with life and made something of himself to win her back. He would later break up with her as a form of revenge for leaving him, and then he abandoned his pursuit of a law degree. As this episode picks up, he was still enrolled at law school at the University of Puget Sound, but had stopped attending classes as he had already started his known killings. So as we mentioned in part one, there is widespread belief that Ted Bundy committed murders prior to 1974. While that year marks the beginning of his known murders, he is believed to have started killing as early as 1961 at the age of 14, when an eight-year-old girl in Tacoma, Washington was taken from her home in the night and was never seen again. While Ted denied any involvement in that disappearance, he did confess to some murders prior to 1974, but gave very limited details about these murders. His earliest confessed but unknown murder was in 1969. He admitted to a detective that he attempted a kidnapping in New Jersey during his trip out east, and then successfully killed two young women while visiting family in the Philadelphia area. Another confession indicated he committed two murders in Seattle in 1971 and 1972, and picked up and murdered a hitchhiker outside of Seattle in 1973. But as mentioned, his first confirmed murder was in early 1974, and Ted was 27 years old, and according to his confession and crime scene evidence, he kept his composure and made efforts to cover up the crime. This led many criminal experts to believe that his actions indicate that he had killed possibly many times before 1974, and may be responsible for many murders between 1961 and 1974. His first known attack on a woman occurred on January 4, 1974. This was around the time he broke up all communication with Diane Edwards, and psychologists believe he went from his master plan of hurting Diane emotionally to targeting complete strangers in order to fulfill his need to cause harm on others. On January 4th, Ted entered the basement apartment of an 18-year-old college student from the University of Washington named Karen Sparks. It was after midnight and Karen was sleeping when Ted began striking her in the head with a metal rod. The assault put her in an unconscious state before Ted sexually assaulted her. 
While Karen survived the attack, she was left with permanent brain damage and significant loss of hearing and vision. She was in a coma in the hospital for 10 days and remembered little about the assault or her assailant due to him attacking her in his sleep and the extensive damage done during the crime. Following month on February 1st, Ted broke into another basement apartment, this time attacking 21-year-old college student Linda Healy. Linda was also attending the University of Washington, and like his first attack, he bludgeoned Linda with a metal rod, rendering her unconscious. But Ted had evolved quickly after learning his first victim survived, and this time he dressed his victim up in clothing and carried her outside to his car. Ted drove her to a secluded location where he murdered her and hid her body in some nearby woods. On March 12, 19-year-old Donna Manson was attending Evergreen State College in nearby Olympia and left her dorm room to attend a jazz concert that was occurring on campus. She never arrived at the concert and never came home that night. When he later confessed to Donna's murder, Ted said the crime was nightmarish and that he had decapitated Donna and burned her head in his girlfriend Elizabeth's fireplace and then discarded the ashes. On April 17th, Susan Elaine Rancourt, an 18-year-old student at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, went missing after walking home from an advisor's meeting on campus. Ellensburg is about 110 miles southeast of Seattle. So while police were investigating the missing student, two female students came forward and said they had experienced a creepy situation when a man in an arm sling asked them to help him carry some books to his Volkswagen Beetle. One woman said her incident occurred the same night Susan went missing, and the other woman said her encounter was three nights before Susan went missing. Roberta Kathleen Parks, a 22-year-old student at Oregon State University in Corvallis, left her dorm room on the evening of May 6 to meet some friends for coffee, but she never arrived. Corvallis is 260 miles south of Seattle, which appeared to be part of a plan by Ted to make sure the crimes were occurring further and further away from his home location in each previous crime. Ted would later tell investigators he saw Roberta sitting alone on campus and struck up a conversation with her. He convinced her to ride into town with him for an evening of drinks, but he instead drove her to a remote location where he sexually assaulted her and then murdered her. And this distance is actually going to be a pretty big deal. In 1974, this was during the oil crisis, the oil embargo crisis. So gas prices were extremely high, gas was rationed. And so Ted is actually going to go through a lot of effort to do these long-distance murders. And when I say long-distance, he's got to drive from where he's at in Seattle. For the April 17th murder of Susan Rancourt, he's driving 110 miles round trip. And that includes attempting a similar abduction the three nights before where he was unsuccessful. So at a time when gas is at a premium, he's making these multiple 200 plus mile round trip drives to create distance from the murders because he knows if he commits all these murders on the UW campus or in the greater Seattle Tacoma area, it's going to be harder and harder for him to commit these murders. This is a time period obviously before the internet, before really good communication between police departments so if he can make these college women disappear but from different campuses distances away from each other it's less likely that law enforcement is going to be getting wise to to the fact that there's a serial killer active in the area 
So again, the April 17th killing is at least two trips of 200 plus miles. And then he's gonna make this 260 mile trip, which so round trip, you're talking 520 miles down to Corvallis to commit this murder on the evening of May 6th. So he's going through a lot of effort. And this is why, again, investigators believe despite the kind of messy nature of those first couple attacks, the one where the woman survives, they, they believe that he's making efforts, making decisions, planning out these murders in a way that there's no way that these could have been his first murders. On June 1st, Ted struck close to home again when he started talking to 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball at a bar near the Seattle-Tacoma airport. He brought Brenda back to his place and according to Ted, they had consensual sex before he strangled her while she was sleeping. And Seattle Police and King County Sheriff's Office were now very well aware of the crisis they had of missing and murdered women that had started in early 1974. They were taking missing women reports, especially women who were considered attractive and between the ages of 18 and 24, very seriously. So when just 10 days after Brenda went missing, 18-year-old Georgianne Hawkins also went missing, detectives rushed to the scene to look for evidence. Georgianne had disappeared while walking in a well-lit alley between her boyfriend's dorm room and her sorority house. This made for a relatively small outdoor crime scene, and detectives combed every inch of the alley looking for any piece of evidence that could lead them to a suspect. And this is important because a lot of these abductions are going to occur as somebody walks from one part of either town or campus to the other. So your crime scene can be anywhere from, in this case, a few hundred yards to miles. And if you don't have an eyewitness stating where this victim got into a vehicle or where they were potentially abducted from, you have no idea where along that multiple mile path this crime may have occurred. So actually locating your quote unquote crime scene is gonna be very difficult in those cases. Whereas in this one, they know she's at her boyfriend's dorm room there's literally one alley that she has to walk down and then she's at her sorority house and this is a well-lit alley. So they believe this crime has occurred within the alley and that they're going to be able to locate some form of evidence in this quote-unquote smaller area that will indicate who is taking these women. But investigators would later find out their search was futile because Ted had lured George Ann into his car Ted had struck her in the head with a crowbar, knocking her unconscious before driving her 20 miles away into a remote part of a suburb outside Seattle, where he then strangled her and laid with her body for the entire evening. In an extremely bold move, Ted drove back to near the alley the next morning to retrieve some earrings and a shoe he noticed George Ann was missing. And the items were in a nearby parking lot, and he grabbed them while police officers and detectives were searching the adjacent alley. No one noticed the man in the tan beetle, and he drove back to George Ann's body three more times that day. While police did not notice Ted that next morning, several eyewitnesses came forward after the news of the latest missing college woman, and the witnesses reported seeing a man with crutches and a leg cast that was struggling to carry a briefcase to his car. One of the eyewitnesses was asked by the man to help him carry the briefcase to his light brown VW Beetle. So this is actually going to be one of the main modus operandi that Ted uses during these crimes is he fakes some type of a major injury that makes him not only seem like he's not a threat but that 
he's somebody that needs help. So these women will lower their guard because they think this is a guy with a, in this case, there's a, a leg cast, a, a broken leg. What is this guy going to be able to do to me? If, if anything happens, I'll just be able to run away from him. And it's because he was in that adjacent parking lot, he lured Georgianne away from this alley that he attacked her in that adjacent parking lot and that's actually where the evidence was. If the police officers had expanded their crime scene just a little bit, if they had known to look in this adjacent parking lot, they would have found George Ann's earrings and her shoe. And these came off during the attack after he lured George Ann over to his car. When he struck her with a crowbar, it must have knocked her earrings off. And when he loaded her in the car, one of her shoes fell off. And in the dark of the night, Ted doesn't notice this, but the next morning, when he wakes up after sleeping with her corpse, he sees that she's missing some earrings and she's missing a shoe and they're not in his car. So he has to assume they fell out in this parking lot. So in the midst of this massive police search of the alley, he drives up in his beetle, gets out, locates the earrings and the shoe and drives off and doesn't draw the attention of the police. And little did investigators know that during the months of these attacks, Ted was working as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. One of his main focuses was on public information, and around the time of the attacks, Ted had written a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. After working for the city of Seattle, Ted was able to get employment with the Department of Emergency Services for the state of Washington. His department would take part in several searches for the missing college women, and while working for the department, he met Carol Ann Boone. The two started a relationship while Ted was still dating Elizabeth, and just like when he was dating both Diane and Elizabeth, these two women did not know about the other woman in Ted's life. Carol Ann Boone was a twice-divorced mother who was 27 at the time the two started dating. Ted was known to have attracted attention from many women at the Department of Emergency Services, and many men later stated they were jealous of Ted. He carried himself with a strong confidence, but those that got close to Ted later remarked that while he had this rugged exterior, he was rather empty on the inside. I think the best example was a guy in one of the articles said that Ted was like a really fancy store where when you're window shopping, you look in the windows and it looks like they have really nice stuff inside, but then when you walk in the store, it's completely empty. And so Ted presented this image of a very attractive, athletic, confident guy. But if you got to know him, people started to recognize the lack of the soul, lack of the personality. And that was not something that he could really fake. So again, that brings me back to the Ann Rule situation and how he was able to manipulate her for so long while they worked together at that suicide hotline. And how with her experience as a police officer, he either had to have tried really, really hard to appear like he had something going on inside of him in terms of a soul or empathy or anything like that to convince her because it does seem like other people in his life noticed this emptiness inside of him. And as Carol and Ted's relationship developed, it put a strain on Ted and his relationship with Elizabeth. He was juggling a stressful full-time job as America was in the middle of the oil crisis and gasoline prices were causing both real life and budget issues for emergency services. He was dating two women and trying to keep them from finding out about each other, and he was committing abductions and murders that were getting more and more media attention. The stress of it meant he was often sick and he lost 15 pounds during the spring of 1974. 
but his need to kill was ever-present, and on July 14th, Ted drove to a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park. With his arm in a sling, he approached potential victims, introduced himself as Ted, and asked them if they could help him unload his sailboat from his car. Three of his potential victims refused, and one agreed, but fled when she saw his car and saw there was no boat on the vehicle. Which, to me, was really strange. I, I know there's really small sailboats, you know, like really small sailboat, like one-person sailboats with a very small sail, but he's driving a Volkswagen Beetle, and there is no boat attached, so I, I, I don't know. There's a couple things about this ruse that I really don't get. A, he uses his real name, and now he's going to evolve from this at some point and use fake names later on, but he uses his real name as he approaches his random people, and there's really no reason for it in terms of nobody's going to know, nobody's going to demand to see identification from him, and his plan is just to get these women to his vehicle where he's going to abduct them. So the fact he didn't use a fake name is going to come back to, to bite him that we'll talk about later in this investigation. But again, it's not as if he even had a great plan once the person got back to his car. They were going to see a sailboat's not something that that you fit in the back seat or the trunk of a car. He would have been better off coming up with some other item that he needed help with that somebody had to go into the car to help him with. But anyway, because his plan is rather questionable, he's right away he's not able to get anybody to his car, but he finally succeeds in getting 23-year-old Janice Ann Ott to leave the beach with him and walk to his car. There he attacked her and bound her so she couldn't get away. He then spent another four hours securing a second victim, this time 19-year-old Denise Marie Nasland. Denise had been at a picnic with friends and walked away to use the bathroom and never returned. Ted later told investigators that he convinced Denise to help him, and when she got to his car, he attacked her and both women were alive when he drove them to a logging road where he killed one of them in front of the other before killing the second woman and then sexually assaulting their corpses. Ted would later state he committed the crime to copy the double abduction and homicide of two women in Florida by Gerard Schaefer. He even decapitated the women just as his idol had done during his double abduction and homicide. So this Gerard Schaefer is a guy, we'll probably cover him at some point, but he was a police officer in Florida and two years prior to Ted's attack of the lake here, this Gerard guy had tried to abduct two young hitchhikers in Florida while he was on duty as a police officer and he gave him a ride while he was on duty to a place but then he said he would come pick them up the next morning and take them to where they needed to go so basically he was being a free uber for them both as a police officer and then when he showed up the next day in his personal vehicle and civilian clothes he claimed he was undercover and that was his undercover car they got in the car with them and of course he drove them to a secluded location and he tied him up to some trees and was about to kill them when an emergency call they need to all the officers at the station came in so he responded to the emergency call and while he was dealing with that the women escaped and they eventually turned him in and he claimed that they were criminals that he was just scaring to a certain degree that he never intended to kill them but while he was out on bail for that he actually succeeded in abducting two other female hitchhikers and then killing them 
making one watch the other one die and then decapitating them. And, and Ted read about this crime in the papers and he wanted to commit a crime similar to this guy. So this is why he put such effort into getting two women because he could have easily left with Janice. He succeeded in getting Janice into the car, but he risked another four hours of trying to find somebody to get into his car just so that he could copycat this, this double homicide out of Florida. And after the women were reported missing, police flooded the area and got eyewitness accounts of the man who identified himself as Ted and owned a VW Beetle. A composite sketch was completed, and while it looked a lot like Ted Bundy, some of the features were off enough that while people joked with Ted that he looked like the Ted from the lake that abducted two women, they didn't actually believe he was a suspect. However, one person who did start to have suspicions was his girlfriend Elizabeth. Along with Ted's strange behavior towards him after he started at the Department of Emergency Services, Elizabeth knew Ted had once worked at a medical supply company and that he had taken items such as crutches, slings, and even plaster casting powder from the job. She had seen the items in his apartment and started to suspect Ted from the lake could be the Ted that she'd been dating for a couple of years. She attempted to call the tip line twice to report her suspicions, but she failed to get through once, and the other time she was told by an officer that she needed to come down to the station and offer up a full name if she suspected someone, but she never followed through. And Elizabeth wasn't the only person to suspect Ted might be the suspect police were looking for. Anne Rule, an ex-professor of Ted's, and a co-worker at Department of Emergency Services all tried to report Ted to the tip line, but detectives felt a clean-cut government employee-slash-law student was not the type of guy who would be abducting women, and they elected not to follow up on the leads. While none of the missing women were found during the initial searches, grouse hunters located the bodies of Janice and Denise off the logging road near the state park on September 6th. While taking a closer look at the remains, they realized there was another body with the two women from the lake. That body was later identified as that of George Ann Hawkins. The following spring and March of 1975, forestry students from the Green River Community College located the remains of Ted's remains of four of Ted's other five victims from 1974 on Taylor Mountain in an area Ted liked to hike. The remains of Donna Manson were never located. Likely feeling the heat from the composite sketches and half-serious jokes about him being responsible for the missing women, Ted applied for law school at the University of Utah and moved to Salt Lake City in August of 1974. While he maintained long-distance relationships with Elizabeth and Carol, he dated several women while attending the school. And due to the abandonment of his first-year classes of law school at the University of Puget Sound, he was required to retake his first year of law school. Within a few weeks of school, Ted came to realize he didn't have the mental capacity to understand the complexity of law cases, and he once again abandoned his pursuit of law school and began focusing on his abductions and killings. So I know that was a lot to take in there. Uh, we've got... The police in the Seattle, Tacoma, greater Washington area, they're, they've got these original crimes from early 1974, and then they have this double homicide of the lake. And as I mentioned, Ted was, I don't know if you want to say it was cocky or confident enough to use his real name, but people are going to start to put together that he looks like the composite sketch, his name is Ted, and people... You know, obviously the one woman walked all the way to his car to see there was an a sailboat there so they know what type of car he drives so it's a volkswagen beetle 
his name's Ted, and he looks like the composite sketch. So you combine that with some of the more intimate knowledge that people like Elizabeth had, and there's a lot of suspicion going Ted's way at this point, and he's going to be feeling this, because even if he knows that people are joking around, the, the saying is what, that every joke has a little bit of truth to it? So he knows that if people are joking that he looks like Ted, there's a little bit inside them that believes there's a chance that he could be the killer. So he's going to feel this heat, realize people are starting to get on to him, so he decides to get out of the area, head to a new spot, because if he continues to commit murders in the, the greater Seattle area, he's going to draw further and further attention towards himself he's starting to develop himself as a suspect this is 1974 almost 1975 he's able to move several hundred miles away down all the way down to salt lake city and not only does that take the heat off of him as people down in salt lake city aren't going to necessarily recognize him as the person who's being looked at in the seattle area for the crimes but it's going to give them a whole new hunting ground where police, it's going to take them a little bit of time to figure out why people are, or women are going missing. So it serves two purposes for him. This moved down to Salt Lake City in August of 1974. On September 2nd, Ted picked up a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho and drove her to a secluded location where he sexually assaulted and then strangled her. He returned to the body the next day to take photographs of it before he dismembered it and threw it in a nearby river. Investigators were not aware of this murder until Ted confessed to it just days before his execution. And when I read this, uh, we are, it's going to be later confirmed, but uh, Ted would carry a Polaroid camera around with them. They were around in 1974, and if you're not familiar with Polaroid cameras, they were the, you take a picture, it spits out uh, a, the photo on on photo paper that takes about a minute or two to develop but then you have this photo you don't have a negative for it so you can never remake the photo but any other cameras at the time obviously this is well before digital cameras and phone phone cameras any other camera at the time you had to have the means to develop the film yourself and then you had negatives sitting around that could potentially be used against you so it's not as if he could take photos on a 35 millimeter film camera and bring him into the local one-hour photo and have them developed. He's taking pictures of his victims after they've been killed. And these Polaroid photos are going to come up later in, in his story. But this is one of those murders that even up until just a few days before the execution, law enforcement prosecutors were not aware of because this was a likely a missing person that was just never connected to Ted Again, he was in Salt Lake City, this missing person. They were hitchhiking in Idaho. Who knows if their family even knew where they were when they went missing, if there was ever even a missing persons report filed for this person. And unfortunately, to this day, I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to identify who this person is or where their body's body is located. Exactly one month later, on October 2nd, he came across 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox as she was walking along the roadway in Holiday, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake City. Ted noticed the road was poorly lit, and he jumped out of the car and chased her down. He caught up with her in an orchard and restrained her and brought her back to his car. 
Ted managed to bring her into his apartment unseen where he sexually assaulted her and kept her alive for 24 hours before he strangled her and buried her body somewhere near Capitol Reef National Park. However, her body was never located. That same month, on October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, a 17-year-old, was walking home from a pizza parlor around 9.30 in Midvale, another suburb of Salt Lake City. Unknown to Ted, he had abducted the daughter of the town's police chief, and he drove Melissa to a remote area of the mountains nearby and sexually assaulted her and left her bound in the wilderness. Her body was found nine days later, and her autopsy revealed she may have been alive for up to seven days after the abduction. On Halloween, another 17-year-old named Laura Ann Amy was trying to hitchhike home from a party. Just after midnight, she disappeared and was found deceased four weeks later in a remote canyon on Thanksgiving Day. Her autopsy revealed she had been kept alive for around three weeks before she was killed. And so this is going to be something, a change in how Ted operates here. There's been the, the woman he kept alive in his apartment for 24 hours and then you have these two women that he's keeping alive in remote locations unfortunately the second woman this laura ann amy it was said that she was found deceased on thanksgiving day and her autopsy revealed she'd been kept alive for around three weeks before she was killed so it's likely in in, in both cases that whoever found these girls in just a matter of days missed the the ability for them to rescue these girls because melissa was found nine days after she was abducted and again her autopsy revealed she may have been alive up to seven days after the abduction and laura was kept alive for roughly three weeks she went missing on halloween day and was found on thanksgiving day which is i mean thanksgiving can adjust because it's a, the thursday last thursday in november but usually it's somewhere around the 28th of November, which means there's a chance that she died just a few days before she was found. And it, it didn't say if they believe that they were ongoing victims what, or if this was something where Ted let them die from exposure and it just happened that Laura was able to hold out for longer. Again, I don't know... There wasn't a whole lot of specifics about this, but it was definitely a change from him normally abducting, sexually assaulting, and killing someone right away. With these latest victims, he kept them alive for a significant amount of time. And on November 8th, while Laura was still alive in the remote canyon, Ted attempted to kidnap 18-year-old Carol DeRanche from a mall in Murray, Utah. He identified himself as a police officer and told Laura that someone had tried to break into her car and she needed to come with him to file a report. She got into his car and when she realized that Ted was driving the wrong way from the police station, she told Ted that he was going the wrong way. Ted immediately pulled over and tried to handcuff Laura, but in the struggle, he managed to cuff both sections of the handcuffs onto her same wrist. So she wasn't actually restrained and she was able to open the car door and run away. Undeterred, Ted drove 20 miles north of Murray, Utah to Bountiful, Utah and stalked 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent. Deborah had been rehearsing for a school play and he used the ruse that he was a police officer and needed to show Deborah something in the parking lot. He forced Deborah into his car and drove her to his apartment where he sexually assaulted her and then kept her alive for about 12 hours until he killed her. 
The missing and deceased women started drawing national attention during November of 1974, and Elizabeth, already suspicious of Ted and knowing the crimes coincided with him moving to the area, again called the police tip line to report Ted as a suspect. Police did take her more seriously this time and admitted to her that Ted was rising on their list of suspects. But police had also shown photos of Ted Bundy to eyewitnesses from the double abduction homicide at the lake, and they had not positively identified him as a suspect. Elizabeth also called the Salt Lake City Police to report her suspicions, which resulted in Ted's name being added to a list of suspects, but they would later claim to have no physical evidence that linked him to any crimes in Utah. And this is something we haven't talked about a lot, these tip lines. Unfortunately, whenever you have a situation like this where a lot of women go missing, end up being murdered, you'll get a lot of vindictive exes or current significant others, whether they be girlfriends, fiancés, or spouses that are upset at their boyfriend, fiancé, or husband, or ex-husband, and will report them as suspects. Now, sometimes it's legitimate because they're victims of domestic violence at the hands of these men, and they feel these men could be responsible for these crimes, so sometimes it is done out of an actual heartfelt attempt to help the investigation but a lot of the time women will report this just because they know that this is going to cause issues for their significant other or ex-significant other that if police are going to show up at their job and start asking questions uh, or show up at their home and start asking questions if this ex is dating somebody new this could cause relationship issues for their ex so there's a lot of vindictive women that will call and report significant others as potential victims when they know that that person isn't likely responsible or knows that person was at work or somewhere during the crimes but still feels like they should name this person so when police are working this tip line and somebody calls from Seattle and says hey just so you know this guy that I'm dating move down there during the time period that this this stuff started they don't know elizabeth and they don't know ted bundy so to them it's just a name that gets added to a list and if she's the only one calling them and nobody else really knows who this guy is or suspects this guy it's going to be difficult for them to to jump all over that and, and run with that lead but his name is going to get added to the list and that is going to come up later in this series there was a break in the abductions and murders as Ted returned to the Seattle area to stay with Elizabeth during his winter break from school. Elizabeth did not tell him she had reported him to the police, and together they made plans for Elizabeth to come to Salt Lake City later in 1975. Ted returned to Utah in early 1975, and on January 12th, he abducted 23-year-old Karen Eileen Campbell from a hallway outside her room at a hotel in Snowmass Village, Colorado. In February, her body was found next to a dirt road just outside the ski resort she had been staying at. Her autopsy revealed her cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the head, and she had also been lacerated by a sharp object. And this is actually going to be a very important homicide in this entire crime spree. It's, it's not covered that way in a lot of the articles, but it is going to come back mainly because... For all of the efforts that Ted made to hide physical evidence and hide bodies, the fact that 
He didn't make a lot of effort to hide her body by dumping her on a dirt road just outside the ski resort. Is going to allow police to build a murder investigation against him down the road. So just remember that name, the, the Karen Campbell uh, name, because that's going to come up uh, again later in this, this episode. And Ted struck again on March 15th, this time in the ski town of Vail. He abducted 26-year-old Julie Cunningham, a ski instructor who had been walking from her apartment to a dinner date when she disappeared. Ted later told investigators he tricked Julie into helping him load ski boots into his car while he faked needing crutches for a ski injury. When she was leaning into the car, Ted clubbed her over the back of the head and shoved her into the car. Ted stated he drove her 90 miles away and then while being sexually assaulted, Julie regained consciousness and tried to escape. Ted strangled her and put her body into a shallow grave. The following month, on April 6th, Denise Lynn Oliverson, age 25, went missing while riding her bicycle near the Utah-Colorado border. Ted would later confess to grabbing her off her bike, driving her to a secluded location, sexually assaulting her, killing her, and then dumping her body into the Colorado River. On May 6th, Ted once again began stalking a school, this time Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. He saw 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver walking away from the school by herself. He was able to lure her into his car, and then he drove to a room he had rented at a nearby Holiday Inn. He sexually assaulted the young victim and then drowned her in the hotel bathtub. He disposed of her body by throwing it into the Snake River. In June, Ted returned to Seattle and spent a week with Elizabeth. During this time, she continued to keep her reports to the police secret, and the two discussed getting married around Christmas. Ted had his secrets too, including his many crimes and his ongoing relationship with both Carol and an unknown student at his law school. But by the end of June, he was back in Utah, and on June 28th, he abducted 15-year-old Susan Curtis from Brigham Young University, where she was attending a youth conference. It was the first day of the conference, and she decided to walk alone from a meeting with friends to her dorm room to brush her teeth when she vanished. Ted confessed to this crime just minutes before he entered the electric chair. And despite his confessions to the murders, the bodies of Deborah Kent, Julie Cunningham, Denise Oliverson, Lynette Culver, and Susan Curtis were never found. While Ted was committing the summer of 1975 murders, investigators back in Seattle were using new technology, which was computers, to try and solve the complex list of missing and murdered women. They utilized the only computer available to them, which was a payroll computer, and they input names of the victims, known associates, registered vehicle owners of VWs that matched the name Ted, known sex offenders, and then asked the computer to find possible matches. The computer created several lists, and the detectives cross-referenced the list to look for names that showed up on four or more lists. Only 26 names did, and one was Ted Bundy. They did the same thing with names provided to the tip line and formulated a top 100 list from the names. Once again, Ted Bundy came out near the top of the list. He was moved to the top of their pile when they got word of an arrest out of Utah from a man in a VW Beetle loaded with gear for abduction and murder, a man named Ted Bundy. So I give the Seattle and King County departments a lot of credit here. Computers back in 1975 are going to be pretty rudimentary, not capable of doing a lot of complex tasks, but somebody had the foresight to think this payroll computer keeps track of people and data. So if we can somehow use this computer 
to put input people's names and data and then have it give us results, there's a possibility that we can take tens of thousands of names and turn them into a much smaller sample size. So if we look at different names that have come up, if we input names from the tip line and registered owners of VW Beetles and uh, sex offenders and known associates of the, these victims, if we if we compile list upon list upon list, feed those all into the computer and then ask the computer to find what lists have the same names and give us a printout, they're able to get a pretty good list of suspects that have what would be considered to be a higher than likely chance of being involved because they're list on multiple of these different lists. And they did the same thing again with names from the tip line and Ted Bundy's name is gonna come out near the top of this list. So in the final part of the series, we will cover Ted's Utah arrest, his multiple escapes from custody, his life on the run, his final murders, his Florida trial and his death. And we'll also explore some theories about how he became the monster he was and why it's believed he felt the need to kill. So stay tuned for part three, which is the last podcast episode before CrimeCon 2023. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.